I want to read you a verse from the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 11. And this is uh, the part in Hebrews 11. It's called the, the Hall of Faith. It's this listing of uh, these Old Testament heroes of the faith. And starting with verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. I say this because we're going to read some things about Jephthah that may have you really wondering if he should be included here. May have you wondering, did the author of Hebrews, had he read the book of Judges? Did he know what he's talking about? And I assure you he did. And this is part of the reason that we are calling this series uh, Flawed uh, Leaders in a Fallen World. That in this book of Judges, we see these different leaders and they're used mightily by God. They're commended for their faith, but we're going to keep seeing that they have deep, huge flaws running through them as well. And not everything they do is the example to us. And to remind ourselves that the, the only person in Scripture that is, that is truly always the example to us is Jesus Christ. That every, everyone else is a, a sinful, flawed individual like we are. And eventually our hope is not in people, our hope is in Jesus Christ. As I said, we're going to be doing chapters 10 through 12, but there's a few things we're just not going to be able to get into. Uh, in chapter 12, there's a story of Jephthah and the word uh, shibboleth. And maybe you've heard people talk about uh, something being a shibboleth. And sometimes they mean it's a, it's a word or a phrase uh, that, that people use or don't use right, and therefore you can kind of tell if, if they're in your group or if they're like someone from outside of your group. And something to talk about a shibboleth, and it, it, there can be different words in people talk about politics, and oh, somebody says something, you kind of know, okay, it doesn't sound like they're on our team or your team, and sometimes in religion, different things. I mean, there, there are other things too. I mean, okay, if someone comes here and they call a, a soft drink a, a soda, you know, we know, okay, you're not from Michigan, are you? Because we say pop here. Okay, I get used to that. There's different things. In fact, when I moved here, when I was, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I had to get used to, to drinking fountains, because, you know, we call them bubblers. Everyone, that's all we, all we call them. A fountain, that's, that's in a park, that's what water comes out of. So, just only this little area, we call them bubblers. So, I'm really resisting the urge to talk about the whole shibboleth thing. Uh, you can read it yourself in chapter 12, because I want to save time for other things I want to talk about. Uh, so I hope you take time to read all these chapters in detail. There's also, at the beginning and the end of 10 through 12, and I hope you have your scriptures because that, that's helpful with this, there's a few other judges. In fact, we're going to talk about more judges today than uh, any other week because we have uh, two judges that are mentioned right at the beginning of 10. They're sometimes considered minor judges just because there's not a lot said about them. Uh, it doesn't mean they were actually minor um, uh, one here ruled Israel for 22 years. Uh, but it says there's Tola, and 
in verse 3, it talks about Jair, the Gileadite, who judged for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. So they just uh, get a little bit of time. At the end of chapter 12, there's going to be three other minor judges, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And they don't uh, get a whole lot of, of mention either. But there's something that's kind of interesting about them is that if you look at them and some of the details that they do give, well, first of all, if you remember, we just finished Gideon. And if you remember, it said at the end, he started acting like uh, the kings around him and he had many wives, uh, wasn't supposed to, but he, but he did, and tried to multiply his, his, his sons and his legacy, and he had 70 sons. And if we read to the end of this, Abdon, he had 70 sons and grandsons that list that specific number. It's just kind of interesting. You have 70, you have 70. And then Tola, the next one, and, well, Elon, the, the second last one, there's, there's no details for them that are given, so we don't know exactly. That doesn't mean they had no offspring. It just means it doesn't say. You know, who knows how many they had. Uh, but then you have uh, two others. You have Jir and Ibzan, and it both mentions that they had 30 sons. So it's kind of interesting, you have kind of this parallelism, and I think it makes it stand out all the more when we talk today about Jephthah, who really the key episode, the thing he's known for, revolves around his, he had just one offspring, he had one daughter. But, well, it's a, it's a tragic story we're going to get into. And I think maybe being sandwiched between all these, that had all these offspring kind of highlights even more the the loss that he experiences. So, let's take a look at chapter 10 and verse 6. I'm going to summarize a little bit here because, again, we see that Israel is disobedient. Verse 6 says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Are are you shocked by this at this point? I mean, this is how every one of these messages starts. They keep abandoning God. God eventually rescues them, and they abandon him again. You know, and this time, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but it's the the Ammonites that are kind of a uh, key enemy that is oppressing them. And so uh, Jephthah, he's from the area of Gilead, which is on the east side of the uh, Jordan River, and you had the Ammonites, and they've been conquering some different territories, and they are oppressing Israel. And it says it's a pretty bad thing. It describes it as them being, them being crushed uh, by, the, by the Ammonites and these other leaders. And eventually... They do cry out, verse 10. So some of this, this is a pattern, it's expected, but we're going to see something unexpected in how God responds this time. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So they, they're crying out again. They realize, oh, we've blown it. We're getting disciplined again. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? and from the Amorites, and the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, and the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the 
Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? He's saying, I've, I've saved you an awful lot here. Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. And get this. Therefore, I will save you no more. And God says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. He's saying, you keep coming to me every time you get in trouble, and that's the only time you seem like you really need me, is you get in a bind and there's this, and kind of seems like I'm just here to pull off the shelf when it's an emergency, and after that you're going to go right back to uh, what you really want to be doing. So hey, if you want to pick those gods, if you think they're such great saviors, they're worthy of worship, let them save you. See, see how that works out. So some pretty, some pretty tough words from God, and maybe not what they were expecting, but it really does, it does get their attention here. And it says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I think this is actually one of the times in Judges where we see probably something closest to true repentance. I think they, they weren't really repentant before when they were crying out. They were, they were sorry about the consequences. They were sorry about the misery, and they wanted God to get me out of this jam. But look, they, didn't, they hadn't put away their foreign gods yet, because that happened later. But here, it seems like this is a lot closer to real repentance, because at this point, they're saying, we are sorry, we have sinned. Their, their grief was not just over the consequence, but over the actual sin. And they were willing to accept whatever God gave them. And I think that's a mark of true repentance when we're willing to say, you know what, I do have it coming. I deserve whatever you give me. I prefer, I prefer your mercy, God, but whatever you say is good, I will, I will receive that because your way is just. And they put it into action. They actually did put away their foreign gods and started serving the Lord. And so God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzvah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So that's the situation. And here now enters Jephthah. We're going to read about him. I think one of the things that I think stands out about Jephthah is, I mean, he is, he's a mighty warrior. He definitely is. But he is also, he is a deal maker. I mean, he is a negotiator. He is someone that not only knows how to use a sword, but knows how to use his mouth to, to talk his way out of things, to, to negotiate. And that can be, he knows how to angle for advantage with the things he would say. He was very artful with that. In fact, I almost gave this message. I almost called it the art of the deal. But I thought, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm trying to make any specific uh, political claims, and that's not where I'm going with this at all. Uh, so I said, well, let's not do that, because uh, that's not the point. But uh, if there was someone that was good at that, that was Jephthah. Um, well, we'll see at least until he pushes it too far. So he tried to negotiate. That was something that 
uh, Jephthah did. And I see three different people he tries to negotiate. And first, he, try, he negotiates with his fellow Israelites. Remember, they're looking for someone to lead them. There was a leadership shortage. And so they decided to turn to Jephthah. First, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. So one thing, he was a mighty warrior. This is what they needed. But he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when the wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we see a few things here. Jephthah, he was a mighty warrior, but he was an outcast. That he came from this family, from uh, some of his father's uh, poor decisions. And think of all what he would have grown up with, uh, knowing that he was, he was not like his brothers, who were the, the sons of his father's wife, but he was uh, the, the unintended son of a, of a prostitute. And just the stigma that he carried that wasn't his fault at all. He had nothing to do with it. But the stigma he was given by, by everyone that, that knew this, by his brothers, and they, they shunned him. You know, think of how alone he must have felt, put off, unloved. And he was, he was driven out. The other sons said, you, you're not going to be a part of us. You're not going to get a share of the inheritance. They drove him out, and he ends up, says, uh, living in land of Tob with worthless fellows who collected around him. Worthless fellows, uh, it literally means empty men. One translation says gang of scoundrels. So when it says worthless or empty, I think it's talking about their, uh, their virtue. These were not the most upstanding people. You know, he was kind of driven out at the, to the gutters, and he was living uh, with other people from, from the gutters, people living a, a very rough life. And he must have had uh, been someone that, that they, they drew to him, that he had some natural leadership, that something that, that attracted uh, them to him as well. And he basically uh, was able to have this um, small army of uh, th- these rough ruffians that he was with. And now Gilead, you know, the people, they're, they're in need of a leader and they have no one else. But you have Jephthah, and, and maybe it's through life circumstances that have helped cause him to be the person that he is now. And sometimes our life circumstances do that. I th- think of uh, when I was a kid, well, I was going to say my dad was a big Johnny Cash fan and he played the song, heard the song, A Boy Named Sue. You know, he grows up, he's getting, you know, in fights all the time and all this, and it, he can't figure out why his dad named him Sue, and at the end, he finds out his, his dad named him that because he knew he, he would have to toughen up and learn to fight uh, or else, because um, people would be making fun of him for being named Sue. And I wonder if there was kind of an effect here with Jephthah, you know, being this outcast and it, it in a way, it, it toughened him. It, it toughened him more than kind of everyone else. And at this point now, they're looking to someone that is tough, someone to be a leader. And 
says the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? That, okay, you didn't like me before. You had no use for me. But now that you need me, now that you're coming to me. And it's kind of like how the people were with, with God as well. You know, have no use for you until all of a sudden, well, we really need you. Now we'll, now we'll come and get you. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we have turned to you now, that, that you may go with us to fight the Ammonites and be our head over, the inhabitant, over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them, into, gives them over to me, I will be your head. So he basically he makes this negotiation. Hey, if you, if you bring me home, and I think there's something there. He's saying, if you accept me back, you bring me back in. Maybe I'm not an outcast. I'm not you know, disenfranchised. I'm not, uh, you, you, let me be adopted back in here. And he says, and if I win this battle, if the Lord gives them into my hands, he says, yes, I will accept this. I will be your head. I will be your leader. So he negotiates this deal with them. And the elders said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. And the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. And so the outcast is now made the leader. So the Ammonites, they're getting ready for attack. The next section here, uh, Jephthah negotiates with the Ammonites. And this is from verse 12 to 28. And the Ammonites, they were basically, Jephthah went out and before just attacking, he said to them, hey, what do you have against me? Why have you come to me to fight against my land? And basically the Ammonites, they claim that this land was once theirs and that 300 years ago the Israelites came and stole it from them. And so Jephthah replies with basically three arguments. And to speed things up, I'm going to give you just summaries of this from verse 12 through 28. And first, he gives them a historical argument. And, and basically, if we want to boil it down, it's, it's this. He says, first of all, we never actually took the land from you. We won it from the Amorites, the Amorites, not you, the Ammonites. So get your ites straight. We want a fair and square from them, not, not from you. Second, he has a theological argument, verse 23 and 24, and he says, God gave it to us. He gave it to us as a gift, and he can give what he wants, and we're not about to give it back. And he says, you can take whatever one of your false gods you know, gives you, whatever you've been able to conquer, Moab or whatever, but that's fine, but the Lord gave us this land. And then finally, as an argument from precedent, he says, hey, it's, it's been 300 years. If you really think you had a claim on this land, why'd you wait for now? Why did you wait until now to come claim this if, you, if it was really yours? But verse 28, it says, The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. I think it's good that he was, he was willing to try and negotiate it's good that he was trying to do this. It's also good, I think, for us to realize that 
we should be able to give good, solid reasons for, for our causes. If, if a cause is just, we should be able to explain it. And sometimes, sometimes, it will make a difference to some people. A reasonable discussion is always to be preferred to other ways of accomplishing things. But we also need to remember that good reasons and arguments don't always really matter to everyone. Oftentimes, people want what they want, and it does not matter how good your argument is. Uh, people are not going to be swayed by, by reason. Just because you have good reasons doesn't mean people will listen to them. But finally, and this is the real heart of the story, and this is where I think things really get tragic, is when he decides he's going to negotiate with, with God. That he's going to bargain with God. And let's read this account. This is starting, this is chapter 11, starting with verse 29. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. So God's with him. God's going to help him to conquer. But then Jephthah does something here that's really unnecessary. Something he didn't need to do, but he, for whatever reason, he decided to do this. It says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he's saying, this is a deal. I really want to make sure that we're going to win this battle. And so here's my vow to you, God, to show you how dedicated I am that what, if we win this battle, when I come, I'm going to make you a sacrifice. And whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me, I'm going to offer that to you as a, as a burnt sacrifice. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Kiramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah went out and he conquered. Then Jephthah came home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And her response is amazing. She, says, she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. He gave her two months to, to mourn and to, to weep with her friends. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow 
that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. I'll tell you, this is not a favorite story. And it leaves you with a lot of questions you kind of have to work through here. I mean, one question we need to ask, you might be thinking this, did he really do that? Did he really, did he really sacrifice his, his daughter? And I'll admit, I would like to be able to rescue Jephthah from this one, to just use him as a hero and uh, say, well, no, that, it didn't really happen like that. And there are some Bible-believing Christians that, that have a view and, um, and good Christians that suggest that, well, what he did, he didn't actually sacrifice her, uh, but instead he dedicated her to God, to the service of God at the, at the temple as a, uh, to serve as a, a virgin in the temple, and that she'd be doing that for the rest of her life. And they say, well, notice it doesn't actually say that Jephthah sacrificed her. It just said he did to her according to the vow that he had made. And at some point out, they say, well, the friends, it, it talks about her virginity. And, well, this means that she was sad because now she would never be able to get married. And that's what they were sad about that. I, say, I mean, first of all, we, if, if that was the case, you know, a lot of people would still have problems that he forced his, his daughter to do that, but not nearly as many. But there are just a few problems. And one is that the, there really is no biblical support that the women... Uh, serving at the sanctuary were virgins or that they, they couldn't marry. It's just not something that the Bible says that it's necessarily like that. And also, why did she need two months to mourn? I mean, if that's what it was, she would have had the rest of her life that she could have done that. And so I, I have to agree with those that say that the most natural reading of the text is that Jephthah really did sacrifice his, his daughter. Now, should he have done that? No. No. I mean, the Bible is clear. God is against that. That sacrificing your son and daughter, the, the pagans, the, the, those around them, they did that. They would offer their children to Moloch and, and do this. And in many places, uh, it says God's people were not to do that. Deuteronomy 18.10, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer? This, these, are, these are terrible things. These are abominations. So God did not command any of this. This was all Jephthah's idea. Yeah, God didn't stop it. And his daughter was the one that came out. God didn't stop it. But should we have expected that he had to stop it as well? So why did he make this? Why, did, why would he make a vow like this? And you might be thinking, well, maybe he expected it. He didn't think it would be his daughter. Maybe he thought it would be an animal that would be coming out. And that he just thought he'd, you know, he, just, he wasn't playing the odds right. And he, just, he got really unlucky here. But he was expecting you know, some, you know, a goat to come out of the house or something like that. Well, one thing, uh, Old Testament scholars, they say that well, people really didn't keep animals in their homes like that, and they would have kept them somewhere else. So it's, it's just not likely that he really should have been expecting there to be an animal that came out. 
And if you meant an animal, it would have been a different, he would have used the word in a different form. And also, too, if he just meant whatever animal comes out, well, then if his daughter comes out, he would say, well, okay, she doesn't count. It's, let's wait for the, you know, for, for uh, uh, Fluffy to come out in, instead. But he, he knew that is what he said applied to her. And who did he think, what was he thinking? I mean, if he had one daughter, I mean, who did he think was going to come out? Was he, was he thinking this through when he made this? Some wonder, well, what about Mrs. Jephthah? <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking there. I have a better theory. I, this is totally not from the scripture, but maybe, maybe his daughter had a boyfriend. That could, that could be really understandable, couldn't it? You know, uh, her daughter's loser boyfriend, and you know, he's looking for an excuse. So he comes out, hey, Mr. Jephthah, how you doing? Ah, sorry, son, got some bad news for you. But I don't think that's actually, uh, that's not actually realistic. The reality is he had to know that it was likely that his, his beloved daughter would be the one to come out. So why did he make this? Why did he make a vow like this? He didn't have to. I think what we see here, I think when we think about Jephthah and what we know about him, I think it shows the importance that he had on, he had to win this battle. You think of it, he had been an outcast his whole life, and now he had a chance to get back in. They were looking to him as the new, new leader, the new head. They were giving acceptance and all of this, that he had, he had lived at this, like this outcast for so long. And he realized this all hinges on how this goes. You know, if this goes well, I'm back in. I'm accepted again. And they're even going to make me the, the head over everything. I'm going to be their, their leader. Um, wow. And this was so important to him, but he realized, but if I screw this up, if I don't come through, I'm going to be the goat again. I'm just going to be out there and, and, and cast off. And I think he thought just, this is so important that he had, to, he had to add something to this to really make sure that God was going to come through. And so he was going to, he was going to I think, basically bribe God with this to show God, this is how dedicated I am. This is how willing I am to have this happen. I'm willing to give you anything, God. So please make sure that this happens to guarantee this. Something so valuable to know that God won't let him down. And if so, he realized what he was doing. He was, he was trying to bribe God. He was trying to manipulate God. I wonder too, I wonder maybe what he thought would happen. I wonder if he might have been a little presumptuous maybe on God's mercy. You know, maybe he remembers Isaac. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Abraham, he's going to go through with it, showing his devotion. And at the end of that story, as Abraham's about to do it, God says, no, stop. Don't do that. Don't harm the boy. And instead, he provides a ram. He provides a substitute. And so maybe, maybe Jephthah thought, well, that's how God is. I'll show him how dedicated I am, but God's not going to God will bail me out of this at the end. He's, he's not going to make me go through with this. Now, of course, God didn't, there's not a voice from God that says, do this. There's not a voice from God that says, you have to go through with it. There's just no voice at all at this point. And so Jephthah takes it on himself that he says he just needs to do this. 
And he still went through with it. Now, it's good that he saw the importance of keeping a vow, but several things are not good. He put himself in basically a no-win situation, or a no-sin situation. Either way, it was going to be sin at this point. I think we would have to say he probably, out of his sense of honor or whatever it was, probably committed the greater sin by going through with this. It's and also, what did this mean? What did he think of God's character? Did he think God's favor could be earned? Did he think that God could be manipulated? I'm going to close with four applications that I want to give us to think about with this. One, don't try to negotiate with God. I think that's one thing that we need to remember. You've seen people try to cut deals with God when they get themselves in trouble. That we've all probably done this. When something happens, we're in trouble, there's a situation, and we, we start bargaining with God. God, if you change this, if you get me out of this, if you heal this situation, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And we do this thinking that this is going to tip the scales. This is going to change God's love for us. This is going to change his plan because he's going to be so moved by our devotion and our desire to change that he'll think, oh, this is a good deal for me. I better do according to this. Of course, how often do we each live this out once the crisis is over? You know, once the crisis passes... We, you know, the, the promise gets a little bit fuzzy. You know, it's like the, the businessman, the billionaire that the plane's going down and he uh, says, you know, if you, if you, get, if you land this plane safely, I'll, I'll give you half of my wealth. And by the time the plane lands, he says, well, I, I've renegotiated the deal. Heard of the, the man that uh, he, he, his ship goes down and he's in, in the middle of the ocean and it's, it's, uh, the waves are crashing, and he's, he's in the middle of nowhere. And he, he cries out and says, God, if you, if you get me out of this, if you get me to shore, I'll give you all I have. And he turns in the distance, he sees an island. He says, oh, God, if you get me to, to that island, I'll, I'll give you half of what I have. And he starts swimming, and the closer he gets, by the time he, he's almost there, God, if you get me to shore, I'll, I'll give you $20. And we make these promises. We try to manipulate God. You know, and that's what the pagans did. I mean, that's how the pagan gods were. You try to buy them off with your sacrifices. You wanted a good journey out to sea, you'd make a sacrifice to keep the, the God of the ocean happy and not mad at you. And when we try to treat God that way, we're treating him like these, these pagan gods that we think could be manipulated. We forget that Christianity is different. Christianity is about grace. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our, 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 our heart. Um, even our, our repentance, it, it's not that our repentance has, has merit to it. It's that we're turning from our sin and turning to God and trusting him alone. We can't make a deal with God because we have, we have nothing to negotiate. We, we have nothing to bring to the table. I mean, when you negotiate, it's, I'll give you this if you give me this. We have nothing to give God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Don't try to negotiate with God. Respond out of gratitude to him. Respond because it's what we need to do. 
Vows to God are a serious thing. When we break our vows, to, even to each other, far too easily, oftentimes we promise to do things, but this day and age it basically means, well, I, I promise to do this unless I decide not to. Unless anything comes up that changes my mind. Instead, we don't let our yes be yes and our no mean no. A vow to God is a serious thing. Numbers 32 says, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord and swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Well, Jephthah got that part right. But part of that means don't be foolish with your words. Don't put yourself in a, in a no-sin situation. Yes, we should be willing to commit. And there's a lot of people today that just aren't willing to commit, but we need to count the costs before we commit. I think a third of four applications, realize the desire for acceptance can drive a person to just destructive decisions. And I think that's maybe what happened here to Jephthah that his desire to be back in, his desire for acceptance, it was so strong to him that he made just a foolish, foolish, irrational choice here. That he wasn't thinking this through. So it's, it's not only destructive, but just irrational. And this applies to all of us from high school students that will make foolish decisions to try and fit in with their group. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, it does too for adults and we want to be accepted by others. We don't want to be the, the outcast at, at work. And sometimes we don't want to be shunned. These things, oftentimes they don't make sense. Oftentimes we know they're wrong, but we do them because of that craving for acceptance. And lastly, remember that God can use outcasts. You know, Jephthah was an outcast and God used him. There's all kinds of people that sometimes we're, we're outcasts. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe at work or with family or, or whatever it is. Maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe, maybe there is no good reason. And you feel that way. God has used outcasts. God loves outcasts. And God can use them in powerful ways. God can use you. you know, maybe the situation you're going through can be part of his plan to, to prepare you for, for what he needs you to do. Maybe that's part of the plan to make you into the, the person that he wants you to be. I'm going to share this briefly. This is kind of personal, but, you know, I, my junior high years were not a great time of life for me. You know, and maybe that's true for everyone, but I think particularly. Now, I remember being in sixth grade, and they... Things were great in sixth grade. I actually won an award for my class. They voted me, actually, Mr. Charisma in sixth grade. Okay? But I don't know what happened in seventh grade. There must have been a secret council that met somewhere. I don't know who I offended or what I did. But you know how junior hires are. There doesn't really need to be a reason. You know, but somehow I was selected to be the GOAT. And when that happens, then everyone piles on. Just every day. Like, every person. I mean, they would get set up on my locker, and they would, you know, rip up my floppy disks, and just cruel, just mean stuff. Even other people that weren't 
It's like people that shouldn't have been making you know fun of me and different things, finding the cruelest, irrational things to to say. Just to, I I got to be the goat for for two years. And yeah, things changed after that, but man, it was it was tough. But you know, I look back too, and I, I didn't enjoy it at all. But I wonder how God may have used that. You know, I wonder how things would have been different. You know, if I would have stayed with certain circles of, you know, friends that I was with. You know, and if I had gone that same direction that a lot of them went, I don't know, what would, my, would I be a, a pastor here today otherwise? Um, you know, it teaches you some things too, developing thick skin, learning that we, sh- you know, our identity shouldn't come from our acceptance with other people. You know, as a conservative Christian, as a Baptist pastor, and, you know, there's, there's positions we have to take that are not the most popular with the world around us. You know, so there can be difficult things in our lives that maybe God is putting you through, but maybe it's for a purpose because he's crafting you into the person that he needs you to be. And most importantly, remember that Jesus was the ultimate outcast. That Jesus was the, the willingly sacrificed son. And he was shunned by, by everyone. Those closest to him fled. He was taken outside the city and crucified. He knew what it was like to be an outcast, rejected by all. And he accepted this willingly for, for our salvation. Jesus was cast out so that we could be welcomed back in. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter out of foolishness. God the Father sacrificed his son out of love and for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for the love of the Father that he loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I pray for anyone here that, um, that, that feels an outcast, I pray for anyone here especially that right now is not in relationship with you, that they would realize that Jesus was, was cast out and crucified so that they could be brought back in. And it's not on the basis of their good works or their effort or their any promises they make, but it's based on what Jesus did for them. Help them to turn to you and accept that free gift of salvation and have a changed heart that follows from that, Lord God. And thank you that you are uh, with the outcasts. Thank you for shaping us. Help us to, to not try to negotiate with you, to realize everything you do for us is out of love and it's a free gift. We don't bring anything to the table. We simply cling to your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.